up a powerful story? I'm Mary DeMuth, and in this podcast, I share stories of everyday people who remind you that you're not alone as you untangle your own story. Because of the outrageous generosity of God, I believe you can experience a joyful restory moment right now. Remember, the old is gone, the new awaits. The Restory Show starts now. The Restory Show, Season 3, Episode 18. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Restory Conference, which will be held in Rockwall, Texas at Lake Point Church on September 16th from 8.30 to 1 in the afternoon. So excited about this. This one is going to be focused on relationships. So if you've been struggling in your relationships and you would like some help, um, this is going to be a super practical conference with four different testimonies and great worship and just some messages that I have been praying over for months and months, actually. So I would love to see you come. If you would like to register today, you can do so now at therestoryconference.eventbrite.com. And there are some discounts for bulk tickets as well. So I sure hope I see you on September 16th at the Restory Conference. And also, if you could do a quick little jaunt on over to iTunes and write a two to three sentence review, that would really help get the word out about the Restory show. This kind of reviewing and sharing it with your friends expands the reach, and I'm just so grateful if you could do that. And also, if you'd like to be on the Restory show for your four minutes of fame, you can share your story at marydemuth.com and click on the right-hand side. There's a little microphone in the little gray box there, and you can click that and easily record your four-minute story. So I look forward to hearing from you. Today, I am welcoming my dear friend, Tosca Lee, who is a novelist, and she's now a farmer's wife in Nebraska, and she'll tell you more about that story today. But I got to meet her right as we were starting our novelist career. We met in New York at the Book Expo of America, and she was in a broken place at that time, and I just had, it was such a privilege to walk alongside her during that time. And so wonderful to hear kind of the end of the story or the maybe the beginning is a better way to put it. So without further ado, here's Tosca Lee. Hey everyone, this is Mary with The Restory Show and I am tickled pink to have Tosca Lee on the podcast today. She is one of my most favorite people in the world and we actually met in New York of all places at, it was like a book convention, the BEA, the Book Expo America, and we both had novels out by Nav Press, and we were both at the BEA together, and that's how we met each other. And so she is a writer. She writes novels and amazing ones, and she's got a new one out, and I'll be sure to ask her about that at the end. And um, Tosca, thank you so much for coming on the Restory Show. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. And you know what? That was BEA, and gosh, that just seems like a million years ago, doesn't it? <laughs> we were so young and naive. Yeah, we were just so starting out and everything. Every the world was our oyster, and now we're like all beaten down by publishing and sad. But <laughs> that's right. We we're could, veterans. We could talk about that forever, but uh, we might bore the listeners. So, uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, how did you grow up, and a um, bit of your story before we get into the bulk of the story you want to share today. Well, I actually grew up, I spent my first years in Virginia, and this is not something a lot of people know about me, but um, my dad taught at Virginia Tech, and so we lived in uh, Blacksburg, but I was born in Roanoke because there was no hospital in Blacksburg in 1969, so I was born an hour away, but um, 
And my little sister came along there too. And then we ended up moving to Nebraska because um, my dad took a position with the university here. And my mother's actually a native Nebraskan. So, and there's a fun story there because her great, great grandma was one of the first women homesteaders. Whoa. Yeah. Who came out with four kids as a widow. And she, she had four claims by the time she died, one for each of her kids. So anyway, we came back here back to, you know, my mother's motherland, I guess. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I've been here pretty much ever since. So I'm sitting in Nebraska right now with the birds singing outside the window um, as we speak. Isn't it kind of ironic that your mother's heritage is a homesteader? And what, what is it that you do right now? Or what does your husband do? <laughs> so last year in this plot twist, I never saw coming. I married a farmer um, and a single father of four. So I now have four children and I'm talking to you from the farm and my husband's out planting soybeans right now, (laughs) trying to get those in before it starts raining. So yeah, I've always been a devoted city girl, but it's funny because I've got that farming background in on my mom's side, but here I am on the farm and I'm a new mom of four. So learning as I go. (laughs) That's awesome. So what story do you want to share today with the ReStory listeners? Mm. You know, it's kind of a long story, but I mean, it's just, it's just that um, I look back on my life and, you know, I look at it like a storyteller because we're both novelists. So we look for story arcs and we look for things to come back around or to make some kind of sense, kind of like moving back to Nebraska or whatever. And I think about, you know, growing up even in Virginia and then coming to Nebraska growing up in the church and really having this very neat idea about my faith, about, you know, how A plus B equals C. And if you do this, then you get that. And, you know, and I was always one of those girls who was pretty much a good girl. You know, I believed that I was saved by grace, but, you know, I didn't need a lot of grace because I was pretty good, you know. (laughs) So, you know, I tried to do everything pretty much right and you know, I went off to college and I came back and I married a guy I'd been dating and and then just really kind of tumbled into this, you know, decade and a half of struggle, basically. A real struggle of a marriage, a real struggle of of things not turning out the way that I had been told that they could or should be. And into this real period of disillusionment. And, you know, if you know me, you know that I'm I'm also the kind of person who's like, no, I'm going to find a way to make this work. And, you know, just finding a way, you know, trying everything. I, I'm a real strategizer. So I spent <laughs> years trying to strategize how to make this work and all this. And also going through a real period of, in a way, kind of, to quote the R.E.M. song, you know, kind of losing my religion in a way. Because it was like, wait a minute, this is not the way things are supposed to be. I, I dotted my I's, I crossed my T's, I checked the boxes, and God's guarantee did not happen. Yes, and everybody had always told me, you know, you you live this way, believe this way, ask for this, pray for this, be more this way, be more that way, and nothing was working, you know. And in my marriage ended up actually falling apart. And that was that was really rough. And I remember I was at that point where I was contemplating, you know, do I actually do this? Do I actually walk away? You know, I mean, I had already been walked away from, but do I actually complete the cycle and walk away from my side as well? And 
I remember I was at that point where I, I felt like I was in, on very scary ground because I'd always kind of done the right thing, done the safe thing, done what I was told. And I remember that this one, one counselor I was talking to said, grace is either enough for you or it isn't. And I was like, huh, because I'd ne- I guess I never fully hung my hat on that peg in a way because I was also, yes, I knew all that, but I was also, you know, very good at doing the right and good thing. So, and that kind of denoted a turning point in my life. And even though that was a very difficult dark time for me, I also felt like in a way God was saying, you know, I have been waiting to give you so many things. And now I'm going to open the banquet doors for you at a time when this is not the way it was supposed to happen. This is not when it was supposed to happen, you know, and all I had was this little thread of it's either enough or it isn't. So that's what I'm going to go with. And that's it's around that time that I actually met you soon after that, because then my publishing journey kind of began. And so that was a really interesting time of exploring you know, what does this mean? What does faith mean? What does grace mean? And, and you know, how do I deal with my disillusionment, you know, with these things that I was told or that I believed or, you know, how do I deal with my disillusionment, disillusionment with the church and with people? I felt very let down in a way, you know, being told, like, if you ever leave, this will happen to you. You'll be excommunicated. You'll be, you know, and of course, none of that ever happened to my ex-husband. And so I felt, you know, very disillusioned. And I'm very thankful now for the gift of storytelling, because as you know, Mary, that, you know, when you're writing those stories, you're really working through a lot of stuff for yourself. And so those books that I had written about, you know, everyone from a fallen angel to Eve to Judas Iscariot, um, that one was especially scary because, you know, in that book, it was all about being a, a person who was doing all the right things and, you know, well grounded and rooted in the religion only to realize that, you know, God doesn't work by our agenda, you know. And and that was my biggest struggle was God was not doing what I thought God should do. And writing that book was very humbling and scary and cathartic in a way, because halfway through writing this book about Judas, I actually realized I was writing my story. Hmm. <laughs> and so I, I was um, I was single for for a decade until I met almost a decade until I met my my current husband, which is really funny because I had sworn off marriage. No, I, I remember. <laughs> yeah. And I had friends, too, who were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, you're, you're saying that you really like this guy? And I was like, yes. And, and then after a while, they're like, wait a minute, you're saying you could get married? And I was like, well, I'm not saying I will. I'm just saying if I did, it would be with him. And then when I said, okay, we're going to get married, they were like, who are you? <laughs> who are you? What did you do with Tosca? <laughs> Where did you go? <laughs> now, when you, uh, how did you first meet him? I was out with some friends. I was actually at home on a Saturday night, which was kind of normal, eating a bunch of cheap Mexican food in front of the TV. And a girlfriend had called me and said, you know, we're out. Come join us. I never get to see you. Come out and have a social life. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to eat my cheap Mexican food in front of the TV. And finally, I was like, okay, I'll come out for a little bit. I'll meet you guys. And we were out there and I was looking around because this was my old stomping grounds, my old high school neighborhood. And I was looking around and I see this this guy sitting at this table talking with two other guys. They look like they were having a business meeting or something. <laughs> and I remember thinking that is the most handsome man I've ever seen in my entire life. And 
I don't know what to do about it. And this is so not me. Ten years without flirting. (laughs) Yeah. And I had flirted and I had dated, but I mean, this was like, I was like, I don't know. I felt like a character and my eyeballs were going, ooga, ooga. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know how to approach him. And, And ultimately what happened is my friend arranged to send over a drink to him with my card, which had only my website on it and my email. And then we ran away. So um, I kind of picked <laughs> him up, I guess. And, and then I felt really stupid because I didn't know anything about him. You know, as far as I knew, he was a, a drug dealer, a cheater, a white beater, <laughs> you know, or something else. And six days later, he wrote me an email and said, thank you. And, um, you know, just kind of started this conversation through which I found that he was this divorced farmer and father of four, a godly man. Hmm. His biggest pet peeve was lying, hmm. who was Mr. Mom to his kids and tucked them in and prayed with them at night. And I just, I can't believe it turned out as well as it did. Hmm. I just can't believe it. So that's the story. It's kind of embarrassing. No, it's awesome. Here's here's the question. How long did you date it before you were married? So before my first marriage? No, the second marriage. The, oh, the one gosh. you're in now. I mean, about two years. Okay, so that's what I thought. It was like a long period of time that you dated before you ended up getting married. So what kind of hurdles did you have to overcome personally in your heart to move from Tosca, the woman who will never get married again, to Tosca, <laughs> I do? <laughs> well, that's a big it journey. was actually longer than two years, too, because we were engaged for over a year. So the hurdles were many One was this can't possibly be this good. Something's going to happen. Another shoe is going to drop. So there was that. And actually, he had some of that, too, because he had come out of a very difficult and trying situation, too. So, you know, like any divorce. So there was that during the time of my of my divorce, the OCD that I had had most of my life really became very aggravated and bad. So I was also dealing with that. So there was the OCD. There was um, this feeling that life cannot possibly be this good. Um, But there was this total humbling sense of overwhelm because if, if you meet my husband, he's very kind. He's very gracious. He tells the truth. But I mean, just he he has become the face of love, you know, to me, you know, this gift that says, you know, it, it's hard to explain. He is like a facet of God's love to me. So, and that was somehow very hard to accept. And I'm not sure why, but I think when you feel like you've been kind of burned before, it's very hard to kind of let that down and say, okay, I'm going to share all of who I am and, and I will accept this in return. I think it becomes very hard especially after you've gone through a period of independence and bitterness to say, I will accept this love. Yeah. I think that, you know, you're on a farm, so you've got animals and stuff, but I think it kind of reminds me of a dog that you adopt that has been hurt by its previous owner. And you have to, you know, the dog is like, you're just going to go to pet it, but it kind of moves away from you and, and doesn't want to be near you and doesn't understand that you mean no harm. And it takes a long time to kind of retrain that reaction out of the dog. It's so much so. Yeah, I remember even when we, after after we got married, and I'm a cleaner outer. 
Okay, so I am the opposite of a hoarder. I'm a thrower outer. <laughs> I'm the same. I like a bad point. And so I was going through one of my ritual cleanings one time soon after we got married and and I saw his ring box and I thought he doesn't need that. You know, it's just the ring box. And a couple weeks later, you know, because he does, he's a farmer. He doesn't wear his ring all the time. So a couple weeks later, he's like, I can't find my ring. And I was like, well, where, you know, was, well, we find out it was in the box that I threw away. And I'm like, oh, and I'm preparing for this anger or this blast, you know, and I'm like, I am so sorry. And he looks at me and he goes, did you think I would be mad? And I said, yes. I'm expecting anger. And he just laughs. He goes, you're a funny wife. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there's no, and, you know, that's one thing that I've learned so much from him in particular. You know, when I say, you know, are you mad or did this upset you? You know, because I'm prepared for that. And he says, no, I know your heart. And I had never encountered that before. That's what made me marry him. You know, I know your heart. And who says that? So, (laughs) as you started, you know, you dated him for a year before you got engaged, and obviously you knew right away that he had children. How did how did that relationship with those his boys? Right, it's all boys. Yeah, all boys. Uh, One girl and three boys. Oh, one girl and three boys. Okay, it just feels like there's lots of boys, uh, which there are. (laughs) There's a lot of boys. How did that How did that work? How did How did you encounter them, and what did they think of you? And how are you kind of treading that path now? And what is that like? Yeah. So obviously I, I came into this with no parenting experience and, you know, only lifetime movies of, you know, <laughs> kids saying, you're not my mom. <laughs> I hate you. So I had, I was like braced, you know, and I remember, you know, soon after I met the oldest boy first because he was in town with his dad for something. So we all went to lunch and I found out a few months later after I had met everybody and, you know, we had started, you know, like they would invite me out for dinner and and things like that. And I learned months later that he had been a nervous wreck. My, my Mm. now son. And I said, well, why is that? Because I didn't want to mess this up. And Mm. I just, and you know, they have been completely graceful to me. I mean, because I really was kind of scared, you know, how are they going to feel towards me as a stepmom coming in? They're with me, you know, three fourths of the time. So I'm the chore Nazi. I'm the one who makes them, you know, pick up their rooms and all this. And like, how is this going to going to work? And they have been completely uh, graceful towards me. You know, even one of the, the younger twins the other day, and we have our days, you know, where we're mad at each other, you know, they're mad at me and all this. And one of the younger twins came over and he likes to pet my hair. So he's petting my hair and he says, you're a good mom, Tosca. Oh, and I wow. said, man, I am trying. And he goes, you don't need to try, you what? Mm-hmm. So, but they have been, again, that's another a facet of grace in my life that I just never experienced before. I expected to treat them and to learn to love them with the kind of unconditional love that you hear about, but you don't really know until you become a parent. I did not expect to receive that kind of grace in return. So how has their love for you and your husband's love for you reframed the way you see God now, as opposed to right after your divorce? Yeah, it's reframed it completely. If you would have asked me my vision of God then versus now, I mean, I always knew during my divorce. I mean, I have I felt let down by pretty much everybody. <laughs> yeah, I felt very bitter in some ways. And 
Uh, but I never felt let, let down by God. But I, I do think that my idea of, of who God is has changed because I have an example of a sliver of what that love is like in these human people that I call my family. So I see, I see the gentleness now of God. I see the nurturing of God, which I never really saw before. That's something that I've experienced as well through my husband and through my children. Just We just celebrated Mother's Day and had some really sweet comments around the table. And one of the things my husband said to me was he knew what my upbringing story was. And he said, I just want, my goal is that the last half of your life with me, which is going to be more than half, obviously, that it would be so much better in comparison to what how you were when you grew up. And I can absolutely say that there's something about having someone consistently in your life that's Jesus with skin on, um, that helps you not only reframe your, how you view God's love, but also reframe how you view your love for yourself, which is a, you know, a difficult thing to do as well, because we tend to be our own worst critics too. I think that's the hardest. And I love that Jesus with skin on, I, I think that's really, really accurate. Um, and I do think that we are our own harshest critics. And, and you know, by far, the, the, the condemnation in my life comes from me. You know, it's not coming from my husband or my kids. It's coming from me. And I still have that. I still struggle with that. But I love that. We were we were on a walk yesterday, and I was complaining about the fact that 50-year-old me doesn't look as cute as I did as 30-year-old me or 20-year-old me. And, uh, and he's like, Mary, what would that do to you if I was always ranking on myself about how I looked? And I would be like, well, I wouldn't want you to do that. That's ridiculous. And of course, I'm not listening to myself speak. And he's like, well, then don't do it because it makes me sad. How would it make you feel if I kept saying negative things about myself? And I said, well, it would make me sad. And he's like, exactly. So stop it. <laughs> I wish it was so simple as just making that choice. Okay, I'm going to stop it. I'm trying to retrain my mind. But do you have any steps toward forward momentum on that on that refrain? Because that's a hard one. I think a lot of people struggle with their internal critic. You know, that is really hard for me um, from everything from my appearance to my work ethic. For some reason, I was always kind of raised to believe I was a little lazy. And I don't really think I was. When I look back on my childhood, you know, it, you know, the things that I was working towards and striving towards and stuff, but that, that stayed in there. And so I'm constantly feeling like I should be doing more, doing better, doing faster, not sleeping, you know, and it's, it's hard, but I have to, and this sounds so savvy, but I really have to give a lot of credit to my husband because, you know, he's the one who says, you know, stop and celebrate, you know, what you've done so far. But he also has said something so important to me lately and it is simply this. He says, have fun. And I'm like, what, what? what? <laughs> have, have what? Because, <laughs> you know, I sit down to write or something. And it's like, uh, you know, and after you've written enough, you know, it's kind of like, oh, God, here we go again. You know, I'm, I'm climbing back in here and this is, this is going to be rough. And, you know, every time you write a long work, you kind of put yourself through the ringer. Or any time, you know, you've got a long day ahead of you, you know, it's going to tire you out. And, and having kids has been really instrumental in that way, too, because kids are very serious about their fun. Mm-hmm. Take fun very seriously. And and so whenever he says that, I, I think, huh, okay. You know, and I recently started thinking, I call God the ultimate creator. 
And I talk about this when I go out and talk to, to writers in particular, you know, and I, I do believe we were made in the image of the most creative being in the universe. And I, I think sometimes of those weird little sea creatures, like, you know, a mile down beneath the surface of the ocean that are like only recently becoming discovered and stuff. And it seems like every now and then we hear about some new weird little sea thing. And I think, you know, when God made those, what was the point? Because nobody was there to appreciate it until recently, you know, so all these years it's been unappreciated. And then I think, well, maybe God just made them for fun. Because he wanted to, yeah. Well, yeah, for delight, I mean, why not flex your creative muscles a little bit and just doodle a little bit, you know, for fun. And and so hearing that, you know, from my husband, not just as it pertains to work, but just life, you know, has been really, really, really helpful because I I tend to be the one who's like, no, the kitchen's got to be in perfect order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen with these kids around. You know? <laughs> they keep messing it up. <laughs> yeah. So. Nothing's where I left it. <laughs> Have fun. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Now, here's a another question that, that I am curious what the answer is, that what you will say. How has writing been part of the sanctification journey for you, of, of uh, this creative part of you? And maybe it's how publishing has you know, beat you to a pulp or, <laughs> or just the sheer act of writing has been a joy or whatever. I don't know how you're going to answer that. But. You know, it's been, um, it's been really interesting because when I look back, when I wrote my first novel, which was Demon, a memoir, um, I think that's what I was signing at BA yep, when we that's met. That's what it was. Yep. Yeah. And I had worked on that off and on for years. And, you know, when you're writing before you get published, I, I kind of feel like, you are in this kind of blissfully unaware bubble in a way, you know, you can be bold and you're just doing your thing. Um, and I think as you, as you go on through a few projects, you become more and more aware of the fact that readers are going to read it. Editors are going to edit it, that it will be judged. And so learning how to deal with the idea of, of being judged while also not being concerned about the judgments that are being placed upon you has been a really interesting and difficult journey, Um, especially like when you're writing and you've got that in the back of your mind because you're writing on contract or, you know, you know that this thing is already scheduled for publication or something. And so being able to learn how to let that go has been um, not easy. When we talk about, you know, (laughs) being worn down by publishing and stuff like that, being able to let that go and just kind of surrender that has been has been hard because I'm not a person who surrenders well. You know, I'm a fight and remember, I'm a, you know, find a new strategy. Okay, well, A, B, and C didn't work. So we're going to try R and Q, (laughs) you know, and there comes a point where you kind of have to just say it is what it is. And I bless it and I forgive the situation or whatever. I will, you know, let it be. And that's hard. So I don't know exactly where that journey is going to end up for me. But I do know that those have been two of my hardest lessons along the way. Yeah, the letting go, the relinquishing control, the releasing an imperfect work because nothing we do could be absolutely perfect into the stratosphere, into the the reader's sphere. (laughs) Sacrilege. (laughs) It must be perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And so just recently you released a book, speaking of publishing stress, and tell us a little bit about the impetus for writing that book and why you wrote it and what what you hope people will find in it in its pages. 
Well, this book is um, the sequel to the book I, I wrote that I released last year. And so this one's called Firstborn, and it's a sequel to The Progeny. And, you know, I've written a lot of kind of heavy books, you know, heavy biblical, historical, heavy, you know, themed books in the last decade. And the topic of this book, it, it centers around this historical figure named Elizabeth Bathroy. She was suggested to me by a, a fan. And as I was trying to think of some kind of new thing to do, I, I went through my idea file, pulled this up that a fan had sent me. And to be honest, I really did write this duology in a way to have fun. And, you know, a good book is is a roller coaster. It kind of takes you through these ups and downs and loops and sometimes things you don't see coming. And I do think that there are many important things that we can accomplish as writers. But I do think that one of the most important ones is to help our readers, particularly in the case of fiction, I'm talking about fiction here, escape for a time. Because, you know, I've I've met too many people who have come out and said, you know, I read your book while I was going through this difficult time or I was sick and I couldn't get out of bed and I was, um, you know, recovering from this or that. And and so I've really started to kind of take this this role of entertainer more seriously lately. And I think it's okay to just help people have those escapes for a while and help them have fun, too. So that's really kind of what this. Yes, there's spiritual themes there. I do. I think. I have the line in there that, you know, forgiveness either is enough or it's not. So that's actually in this series. But it's a it's a fun escape and it's a thrill ride. So that's why I wrote it. That's awesome. I need to write I need to write a novel like that. Mine are a little for too fun. heavy. Yes, I need to write one for fun. So what kind of advice would you give to someone who has maybe checked all the boxes and things did not turn out the way that they thought they should turn out? I would give uh, maybe a few pieces of advice, but, you know, one of them is that, you know, during this time, I remember watching this TV show about how the universe is like 12 dimensional or something, something that like totally blew up a hole in the back of my head trying to even fathom this. But, you know, our God is, is wild, will not be neatly contained, will not fit on a neat spreadsheet of answers. And, you know, if there's a 12 dimensional universe out there or however that works, there's way more going on and way more possibilities than than what our brains can fathom. And I really do believe that, you know, when the A, B and C have been exhausted, that there's a QRX, you know, option that we never even thought of. And I do believe that God is the author of the unlikely. And, um, and I think sometimes the best advice is simply to find whatever joy you have in the moment. Stay in that joy, have fun, you know, and do the work. I do believe in doing the work, whether it's writing or life or child rearing. But I also believe in surrendering the results because you'll go crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And we've all had those periods of craziness, I'm sure. I know I have, definitely. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, we're all kind of just part of the process. We feel like, you know, everything feels personal. You know, our ego is tied up into what we do and our work and how things that turn out around us and how the kids turn out. And um, But at the end of the day, we're just a part of the process. And I think there's joy to be had. And I think too often it's it's something that we, we choose to kind of let float by. So it's good. Just, yeah, finding it in the moment. I think that's really 
so wise, especially yeah. when we're going through something traumatic and it's hard yes. to see our way out. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. I, I would definitely like you're surviving. Yeah. Oh, I definitely would categorize what you went through in your first marriage as traumatic. So you, you were, you know, recovering from trauma for those years. Yeah, it was traumatic. And there are times when you just feel like you're surviving. Mm -hmm. And every mm -hmm. now and then you just have to pick something small, even if it's something stupid, you know, to, to focus on and laugh at and, you know, trust that this all fits together somehow. Yep. I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And there is that scripture about that no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. So there's that, this idea, this anticipatory thing of even if it doesn't happen on this side of eternity, on the other side, things are going to be pretty rock and awesome. And we get glimpses and tastes of God's goodness here on earth, but eventually it, it will, the rights the wrongs will be righted and it will be a good place. And, and yeah, we'll be in those 12 dimensions, which we don't understand and <laughs> all of that. I still can't quite wrap my, yeah, I, I only know a few you know, of those dimensions. And I try not to, I mean, I, I don't really like platitudes and I don't, I don't, I don't like them. I just don't, you know, so I, I really have tried to stay away from platitudes and stuff, but I, I do really think that somehow things work out. I think that there's great grace in every moment. I think sometimes we just don't see it. And mm -hmm. I, I think that if we don't see it, it's generally because we are not having grace for ourselves, you know? So in the past year, how have you been restoried? Oh, so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> Let me count the ways. Yeah, becoming a, a wife, a farm wife, and a mom. I, my story is, is such an about face in so many ways. I mean, the one consistency is that I continue to write. I mean, even my body's not the same. I put on 15 pounds after getting married. <laughs> after Farm food. Pizza rolls. It's like, what? Um, I'm restored in so many ways. I think, I think that I've seen a, a gentleness and I think I now understand a gentleness to, to God, to marriage to relationships that I never understood and saw before. And it's way bigger than I imagined. It's way, it's way deeper, you know, and more. And I'm completely blown away by that because I couldn't even write a story about that feeling um, or that sense of grace or that what that is because I couldn't do it justice. I've just never seen grace like that before from the way that it's given to me by my kids or by my husband or my husband's family who welcomed me with open arms. And I know it sounds like sickeningly sweet and it is, you know, sickeningly sweet, but it's been, um, I'm not the same person, you know, but I've gone through a lot of circumstances that have totally reshaped this. And I, I'm not sure that I would understand or see or receive with the same kind of gratitude everything that I do now, if my life had been before. I think that's the, the currency of the kingdom is gratitude. And so I think that's a really, you, you know, beautiful way to land this interview is just to end on gratitude and how we all can take a moment even right now and be thankful for one thing, you know, health, you, the fact that you're alive and breathing is something we can be thankful for. And so thank you so much for your wise words and um, being oh. open and honest. I just really appreciate you being on the Restory Show. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Mary. I love you. Thanks for listening to The Restory Show. Do you mind if I pray for you? Lord, relationships can be so hard. And some listening today are just working through difficulties in marriage. So I pray for those who are confounded in their marriage, frustrated. Lord, I I don't even know how to pray intelligently about it other than we just so much need you in our relationships. And we need to know that you are with us when we struggle and when we suffer. And so for those caught in difficult relationships today, Lord, would you just walk alongside and be near? And for those who are battling the stigma of, a, of divorce, I pray you would just salve that wound and help each person to see that you see them, you understand, and that you are, are just with us through the, through the battle. And Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with whatever relationship, something that may be hurting or, or there's a misunderstanding or a fight that happened. And, and Lord, I know it says, as far as it depends on us, be at peace with all men in Romans 12, but sometimes the other person doesn't want it. And so for those of us who are experiencing heartbreak because somebody else doesn't want to reconcile with us, give us the peace that passes understanding. We so need it today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like more information about today's show, head on over to marydebuth.com forward slash restory 3-18, and may you live a brand new story this week.